You'll find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. I should say no meerkats were harmed during the children's talk. You can pass that on to the children uh, afterwards. So we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. Uh, We've done the easy bits at the beginning with all the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. And we're now into the giving of the law. And we're going to see this morning that it's not whether it applies, it's how it applies. We've got some Old Testament laws here, and they're notoriously difficult when it comes to looking at the Bible. Not least that because there's a strain of thinking that said Old Testament laws, basically we could just do away with them. Uh, that they don't apply at all. There's even some excellent Bible teachers who tend to have this tendency to split the law into three. They say it's moral, it's ceremonial, and, and judicial. The moral stance, the ceremonial's fulfilled, and the judicial ended with the nation of Israel. Now there's some merit to doing things that way. But, firstly, the law itself doesn't split up that way. We're going to see as we go through the law that it's sort of a bit all over the place. I don't know if you noticed that as we were reading uh, through things before. The New Testament also doesn't talk about the law that way. That's not what the New Testament says about the law. And then thirdly, if you end up with that position, then vast swathes of the scriptures end up being pointless. It's sort of there, and we say, well, they don't apply anymore, so what's the point in teaching them? What's the point in looking at them? Like vestigial organs, they become like vestigial scriptures, about as useful as an appendix. Yes, I do know appendices, or appendices? Appendices? Do have uses. Uh, Just run with it for this morning, though. But we believe, don't we, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Not just that God said it, but that he said it for our good, for our growth, for our benefit. And as we come to sections like this, we must bear in mind what the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 9. He said this, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That sounds like some of ours this morning, doesn't it? Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the ploughman should plough in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And he goes on to apply it to gospel ministry. So this morning we're going to read about oxen. But it's not for the oxen that God is concerned ultimately. It's us. So these are things that apply to ourselves. These don't just have relevance in a sort of judicial sense. They don't just have relevance for lawmakers. I mean the closest we've got to that at church is Richard and Sarah who are town councillors. They're away in Japan. Not at the G7. They're not doing anything like that. But it's got things to do with us, even if we're not involved in making laws. It's understanding the principles that underlie the examples of the laws and applying them to ourselves. And if we miss that, then we'll end up Pharisees, attempting unsuccessfully to apply the letter of the law to others and missing out on what the spirit of the law says for ourselves, you and me. So what is the spirit of the passage about all this morning? Well, the thread that links all our section together this morning is restoration, amends, restitution. The good old King James Version has it to make good on something. It's the idea of uh, of making restitution. And all those words attempt to put across one word in Hebrew, which is shalam, restitution, restoration. It's closely related to the Hebrew word for peace and wholeness, shalom. And it really it means to restore, to make whole again. 
So restoration in that sense is a good word for it. I tried looking for books on that topic this week on a popular Christian book website. I won't uh, mention which one it was. There were lots of books on shalom, peace. But there were no books on shalom, restoration, uh, in the way that we mean it. I tried a, a, a website that was a bit broader, theologically speaking, and I found three books on restoration. One of them was very out there and a bit crazy, wouldn't sort of buy it. One of them was for recovering drug addicts, and one was which uh, was just for men, not their hair thing, but just for men, um, and it was out of stock. So I'm going to try and read it when I get hold of it. But to put that in context, those three books I found on that topic, I searched for peace, the other thing, I found 2,680. So I think three verses 2,680 says this is something that as Bible-believing Christians we don't often talk about. And yet we see that it's there, and it intersects with us, sometimes in very profound ways, in our walk with Christ and our walk with others, as we seek to make amends. This is showing us how to love our neighbour, how to love our brother and sister. And after all, that's what the law is really all about, isn't it? Galatians 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And this is showing us how we do that. And what the law is teaching us here is that when we wrong someone, we're to make restoration to that person. So it's not whether it applies, it's how it applies. In fact, knowing the law helps us know how to apply the commandment to love our neighbour. So our first point this morning, a heart with the law written on it will seek to make amends. Let me just read to you again verses 33 uh, to 36. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then uh, they shall sell the ox, the live ox, and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. The first two examples that were given here are basically accidents. An ox or a donkey falls into a pit and dies. An ox butts another ox, and it dies. It's an accident, but there is a degree of responsibility. The man who dug the hole didn't cover it. The ox who butted the other has an owner. And in terms of, uh, uh, and the terms change, if it's been prone to do this before. There's no hint of maliciousness, though, or evil intent, but damage has been done, and restoration is in order. In the case of the animal in the pit, the one who dug the pit must pay for the animal that it died. He essentially purchases its dead body. A bit like in those expensive shops, we're always sort of taking our kids around, not expensive shops, but those things where you can break things, and you know, the, the signs will say, if you break it, you pay for it. And that's basically what's going on here. In the case of the ox butting the other, they go halves. They sell the ox and they get half each. They get half of the carcass too, so rib steaks all round. But if the ox has a track record of doing this thing before, then he's to give him a whole ox to replace the dead one. His negligence is greater, so his restoration is greater. We'll revisit that again in point two. 
But you can see in these cases that even when it's not intentional, if harm was done, restoration must be made. And that is a general principle in the law. So let's make it really simple and basic. We enforce this kind of thing in our home. If our boys hurt one another, even if it was an accident, they still need to say sorry to each other, and they still need to hug and make up. That's the deal. But really, as believers, we're sort of a bit older than that, but we still hurt each other accidentally. And shouldn't this be our default position? If you've hurt someone by your words, by your actions, even if it was not intentional, what it's saying here is that we need to make amends. We need to make restoration. Really, in these cases, it's carelessness, not callousness, that causes the big problem. But believe me, that's so often the problem in life, isn't it? It's not often the things we do on purpose. How many relationships have been broken because of a careless word? No harm intended, but much harm received. We should be those who seek to make the first move, who seek to make up for the hurt that's received, even if it was not intended. It might just be saying sorry for your carelessness. It might be buying them a bunch of flowers. It might be writing them a card. If you're not that kind of person, it might be mowing their lawn, or fixing their shed, or, or something like that, if you're not a card and flowers sort of person. Whatever it is, though, we should be those who are eager to make amends. If the law is written on our hearts, as the New Testament says, then this should be our go-to response in a situation like that. A heart that automatically seeks to make amends is a regenerate one, a new one. But what we mustn't do then is turn it into a sort of payment system. Like it's, I'll give you this, it sort of bribes you to forgive me. Or turn it into a kind of doctrine of penance, where, you know, somebody tells you what to do, you know, say this set of prayers or whatever. Because no amount of prayers, no amount of money can pay for sin, can it? Really, that's not what we're talking about. We've been singing through all the songs, the, the eternal consequences of sin, the debt that we owed, that was paid by Christ alone. His death pays for it. And no amount of amends can do that. No amount of cards or flowers or even tears can do that. There's that old hymn, Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Making amends doesn't pay for our sin before God. But it is something that we should do. It's not even suggested here, by the way, that it pays for our sins before God. That's not something that changes between the Old and New Testament. What's really going on here is person to person, not person to God. It's decreed by God, but it doesn't undo before God what we've done. Our amends might please appease a person, restore our relationship with them, which is a good thing, but there are no amends that we can pay to restore our relationship with God. Only Christ can do that. But that doesn't mean that person to person is not important. We're to love God and we're to love our neighbour, aren't we? We are to try and love our neighbour and do what's right with them. So how can we know what to do when it comes to someone that we've wronged? What can we do, humanly speaking? Well, second point, different intention needs different amends. Have a look at verses 1 to 6. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, 
He shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. For if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that it's stacked grain or standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. The cases here differ from those we saw in the other verses. There's still the case of carelessness or negligence with the fire breaking out in verse 6. At least hopefully that's what's going on in verse 6, that it's not on purpose. But the others are to do with deliberate theft of something from someone else. Cattle rustling or sheep stealing in verses 1 to 4. And illegal grazing on someone else's land in verse 5. In the case of the deliberate theft of the animal, if the animal's found alive, then the thief must give back double what they've stolen. But if they've already slaughtered them, if there's no chance that the sheep had simply wandered into their field, or they were just sort of borrowing them, when you do that, I don't quite know. But in that case, it's five oxen for every ox stolen, and four sheep for every sheep stolen. Do you see that with the increased malicious intent, an increase in restoration is needed? The same is true on an attack on the thief. If it's night time and you don't know what's happening, and there's all that confusion, then you'd not be liable for the death of the thief. But if it was daytime though, and you could see what was happening, then you couldn't kill the thief with impunity, you'd be held accountable. It's more likely then that you did it on purpose, out of spite, than if it was at night time. With increased malicious intent comes an increase in the restoration needed. In this case, it would be their own life that would be forfeit. As an aside, if the thief couldn't pay back the, the amount required for the livestock, he'd be sold as a slave to pay back his debt. Someone last, asked me last week, so we're looking at slavery, uh, whether slavery in Israel was always voluntary. Well, most of the time it was, but we see here that it's not always voluntary. But it wasn't arbitrary. You couldn't just be picked as a slave and made into one. That to be a reason for that to happen. But the principle of the bigger point here is that if you've done something on purpose, then you need to make bigger restitution to the person you've done it to. When we've hurt people deliberately, when we've sinned against someone openly, then the need for amends is greater. And again, it should be our nature as Christians to do it. Our best example of this is Zacchaeus. Uh, I'm sure some of us will be familiar with the story. It's about a, a small man who climbs up a sycamore tree. There's a song that goes with it uh, for the kids. But Zacchaeus is someone who, who shows us what this is like. His story is told in Luke 19. So Jesus has come to his town. And so he hurried and came down and received him uh, joyfully. Called down from the tree, sorry, by Jesus. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
Zacchaeus gives back four times what he stole from others. I must admit, I've always thought that was a bit extreme, sort of thinking, well, you know, surely if he just gave back what he'd taken, that would be enough. But really, it shows that the law was written on his heart. He's taken a law about oxen and sheep and applied it to his own circumstance by giving back four times as much what you'd do if you'd stolen sheep. And it serves as evidence of his true repentance, his true turning away from his sin before God. And Jesus says he also is a son of Abraham. Now that's Zacchaeus. What about us? Do our hearts show the same eagerness to make restitution, to make restoration? I've been really challenged by this this week as I've been looking into it. Because so often, forgiveness, we can use it as an excuse not to make restoration, can't we? We sort of say, well, you know, I did that wrong thing, but God's dealt with it. Yes, he has. That's correct. He sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins, including any thefts, any hurtful words, any attacks on others. Our account with God, in that sense, is closed. But that doesn't mean that we're off the hook for restoration to human beings that we've wronged. Let me give you an extreme example and then work it backwards, okay? If you murdered someone and then became a Christian, that would not remove your obligations to the legal system and to your victim's family. It would forgive you before God, but you'd still have things to do, wouldn't you? In fact, surely now that you've become a Christian, you'd want even more to make things right. Surely then the truth of the gospel doesn't and shouldn't take away our responsibility to deal with other people, to make restoration to others. In fact, really it should give us an increased desire to do so. Come back to Zacchaeus. Nobody told him that he had to give back fourfold. It was that he now wanted to. That work had been done in his heart. So Christians should be those who are bending over backwards to make restoration when we've wronged someone. Some of you I know will be thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. (laughs) They really need to hear this message. Oh yes, they wronged me. They should be bending over backwards to make up. They need to hear this. But that's to have it the wrong way round. This is about our hearts, not their hearts. That's not the attitude that Jesus wanted for his followers. This is what he said to them. Uh, Okay, I don't have that one up on the screen. It says this. And if anyone would sue you, it's Matthew 5, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. A regenerate heart seeks to make amends, but it doesn't demand it from others. That's the point that Jesus is making. Someone takes your chicken, let him have your other one as well. He's not demanding restitution. A follower of Christ is one who forgives and gives back more. Not one who harbours a grudge and demands back more. And that can be hard, can't it, in our circumstances? Especially in those cases, like in chapter 22, when hurt has been done intentionally, when it was done to us on purpose. But isn't that what Christ did? Forgive and give back. 
make a way for restoration without demanding it from us. Christ doesn't want you to pay him back for what he did. That's not why he did it. We would never come close anyway. But he does want us to go and do likewise with others. He forgives us and he wants us to go and forgive others as well. So are we letting the example of Christ permeate our life? Are we seeking to make amends when we do wrong to someone, whether intentionally or unintentionally? Are we seeking to forgive those who have wronged us, whether they did it unintentionally or intentionally? Forgiving others doesn't earn us forgiveness. That's not the way it works. But it shows we're forgiven. So again, Jesus said this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He links them together, doesn't he? Equally, just as forgiveness doesn't earn us a place with God, restitution doesn't earn us forgiveness either. But it shows that we genuinely care about the wrong that we've done, doesn't it? And it shows that we genuinely care about the person we've wronged. But sometimes situations aren't that clear cut, are they? Who wronged whom? Did they do it on purpose or did they do it accidentally? Is full restoration needed or just a heartfelt apology? And so our last section. Leave it with God. Let me read to you. It's actually 7 to 17. I added on a couple of extra verses this week. I'll explain why as we go through. If a man gives to his neighbour money or goods to keep him safe, they uh, keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, and if the thief is found, he shall pay back double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbour's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbour. If a neighbour gives his don- a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and if it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be put between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbour's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbour and he is injured or dies, the owner not being with him, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with him, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came with its hiring fee. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. I'll start with the uh, last scenario, uh, or second to last scenario first. It's basically this, if you let someone borrow your power drill and they break it trying to drill through something metal, that's their fault. They need to buy you a new power drill, okay? But if you're with them, watching them, trying to drill through solid metal with your power drill, and you don't step in and do something, then they don't need to buy you a new set, okay? That's not legally enforceable, that's not the law of the country, but it is common sense, that's what it's saying. Moving then to uh, the last scenario, verses uh, 16 and 17. 
Originally, I didn't have this in this section. Now, you'll notice most Bibles separate it out and put it with the next one, with social and religious laws. The thing is, though, it fits better thematically with the one that we're talking about here. Now, it's not saying that a woman is property. But marriage here involves a dowry, a bride price, as it calls it here, as it still does in many parts of the world. And here, if things were not done according to the law, then a cost was incurred. That's why it fits with this section. If a man seduced and slept with an unmarried or unengaged woman, what it's saying here is that he would have to marry her. This is not talking about rape, that's dealt with elsewhere. But here, it's an unmarried couple who've strayed into things that are only for married couples. The answer is that they're to get married and a dowry is to be paid. Presumably the girl is okay with this because she slept with him in the first place. But if the father-in-law decides that he doesn't want this guy as his son-in-law, he's not good enough for his daughter, then the guy still has to pay the dowry, even if he doesn't marry her. Amends must be made for what has happened. He can't just sleep with this girl outside of marriage and it have no consequences. He either ends up married or with a massive financial headache. We find out in Deuteronomy that the dowry is set at 50 shekels of silver. That probably means nothing to you, but that's about seven months' wages, okay? Depending on your job. What it's showing us here is that sex does and should have consequences. It's something special and holy and set apart for marriage. We can wrong others sexually, and that can cause immense hurt. I know that many of us carry baggage from that kind of thing. As with other cases here, we need to show forgiveness if we've been wronged and make amends if we've hurt others. As with all the cases, though, in this little section, it's not simple. Often in these cases, we are both wrong and wronged. And there can be cases that we need to follow through with authorities. But actually, there are also, in terms of our relationship with God... We need to learn to leave it with God. If there are reasons that we need to pursue it, we should. Sin thrives in darkness and it needs to be brought into the light. But in our hearts, we need to be going for forgiveness. The other two scenarios here are a bit more mundane. But as I mentioned before, ambiguous. In the first scenario, we have a man who's left something at his neighbour's house for safekeeping and the item is stolen. In those days, it was hard to keep things safe if you went away. It still happens. My dad uh, used to go and park his car at a friend's house when we went on holiday so that he could watch it while we were away. People leave their pets with others so they can take care of them, which would make sense if you were leaving sheep or donkeys or oxen. What happens, though, if you get back and the car's not there? When your prized chihuahua disappeared... Uh, during the night, your friend says, uh, and someone came and took it. If you find the thief, easy, and the rules of recompense come back in, and you get yours back, and the thief's cat or dog as well, by what you want, I don't know. I'm just not a cat or dog person. <laughs> but what happens if you don't get it back? There's that lingering suspicion. You know, while I was away, did he sell my car? I know he's had money worries. Did she sell my dog? There's a man I've seen walking one round the corner that looks really similar to mine. The second scenario is similar, except now a friend claims that the animal ran away 
But there are no witnesses, and those same suspicions arise. In both scenarios, the answer is essentially the same. We bring it to God. In the first case, it was probably with the, something called the Urim and Thummim that are in mind. Uh, so in verse uh, 8 it says, If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he's, he's done it. <laughs> no one knows exactly how the Urim and Thummim works, but it was God's instrument for deciding a verdict. If the friend was found to be lying, he had to repay double. If the original owner had accused him falsely, then he had to pay double. Either way, they would bring it before God and God would settle the matter. In the second case, it was an oath before God in verse 11. If the friends could swear an oath before the Lord that he had not taken it, then they would have to accept that as proof that the man was not lying and let it go. No restitution would be made. Now, we don't have an urin or thummin, whatever they were. And Jesus tells us not to make oaths anymore, to let our yes be yes and our no be no. But the principle of taking it to God and leaving it with God still applies. There are some situations we just can't know. We can't know who's to blame. Did they do it on purpose? Were they just being careless? Could they have stopped it in some way? We just can't know. But in those situations, we can leave it with God. In the end, God is the judge in those situations. And he will judge. But we need to learn to leave it with him. And it's not whether he does, it's how he does. Sometimes he'll make it clear what's happened. The truth will come out. Sometimes he will work in the conscience of the other person so that they're moved to tell the truth. Sometimes he'll work in our own hearts, enabling us to forgive, even when we didn't think that was possible and we don't know all the facts. But we need to learn to leave it with God. So let's take the lessons of the law seriously. Let's be those who are quick to forgive when we're wronged. Are quick to make amends when we've wronged others. Perhaps there are people that you know you've wronged. And you've been thinking this morning, actually, I, I know I need to sort something out. Perhaps you've been wronged by someone. And you know that you need to forgive. In the end, we need to leave it with God. But I'm going to give us a, a few minutes now, just or just a minute, to think and pray through what we've heard this morning. And then I'll uh, lead us in prayer together before we do our closing prayer. So just give you a minute just to think and pray and consider. don't always know all the facts, Father. Sometimes we're those who are wronging you, there's sometimes those who are being wronged. Father, help us to be those who seek to make amends, who seek to forgive, not for getting brownie points with you, but because we love our neighbour as ourselves. Father, help us this week if we need to talk to someone. Father, give us the courage to speak and give us a heart of love for that other person. And Father, help us in the end to leave it with you, knowing that you care for us, and that you will judge, and that you know all the facts. So Father, help us to leave those things uh, in prayer to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.